Pals podcast, where I, Sophie Scott, meet different people from the Pals academic community and beyond, and we talk a bit about uh, how we navigate a way through a life in academia and science and all the other things one has to do uh, as a grown-up in this world, and also that we do to sort of stay sane. Um, so I'm really delighted today to have an opportunity to talk to Lasana Harris, who's a colleague from Experimental Psychology, yeah. is that right? Um, who's very kindly come over to the ICN to have a chat with me. And I'm going to, um, well, ask you your first question, if that's all right. Sure. <laughs> so, Lasana, could you just tell us a bit about what, um, just, just introduce us to where you are now in your career and then we're going to go back a bit if that's all right. Sure, so I guess I'm at what they call mid-career. Um, so I'm old but not that old. Um, so basically I'm an associate professor which means I've already been through uh, graduate school and the postdoc process and I've had a job for a few years. And now I'm at the stage where everybody asks you to do everything. Um, so I'm editing journals and I'm convening conferences and lots of things in the field that just sort of happen and you never thought about how does it happen and now I know it's because people like me have to do it. So it's a very interesting place to be in. Mm, mm. Yeah. And you're, would you describe yourself as primarily as a social psychologist? Would that be? No, I don't think that's accurate. I think yeah. I'm, uh, I'm very interdisciplinary. So yeah. psychology perhaps is the best term that captures what I do. So I was trained as a social psychologist in part mainly because my supervisor was a social psychologist. But during my PhD, I did cognitive neuroscience. And yeah. so I ended up being a translator for her regarding the neuroscience work, which was very interesting. Could you imagine you're telling your supervisor what they should know? Um, but it worked very well. This all happened at a time where social neuroscience research, which was this merger between social psychology and cognitive neuroscience, was now beginning. And so I was essentially a test case or a guinea pig, I like to think of. Um, in my department, I was mm. the first such student they tried to train, and they've trained many more people much more famous than me, so it must have worked. Um, and so what I ended up studying in my doctoral training was cognitive neuroscience, but I learned a lot of the social psychology theory. So my research is informed by that theory, but I don't typically use social psychology methods. I use mm -hmm. more cognitive neuroscience methods. And since my PhD, I've extended into other areas that are related to my topic. So I do developmental psychology work. I do some evolutionary anthropology work. Um, and I do a lot of decision-making work as well, what you might call neuroeconomics. And so I'm very interdisciplinary in that sense, but I'm a social psychologist in that I believe in those theories, and, mm -hmm. but that's about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if we go right, right back, can, can you remember, I mean, not everybody has this sense, but do you remember a time when you were much younger, when you first sort of found something interesting or something kind of caught your attention that actually now when you look back at that and you think actually that was me starting to get interested in what I've ended up looking at. That's a really good question. I think yeah so one of the things that stays with me now which seemed insignificant at the time was um, in my secondary school I studied uh, economics, history and literature so I wasn't a scientist by any stretch of the imagination. And in literature class, I remember there was a discussion of, I think it was a William Blake um, writing, 
and there was a particular character in there and Blake had only given a very limited set of information about the character. But when I wrote about the character, I did what I think I now study, which is I expanded on it immensely. I essentially got into their minds and thought about their life and their experiences. And I remember my literature teacher saying, well, that's not what we do here, right? We're sort mm -hmm. of focused on the relevant literary themes and all of this stuff about the experiences of this person is largely irrelevant, right? Because we could never confirm it. And that stays with me today because essentially in my research, that's the process that I'm looking at. And I find that it's something that I did quite easily as a human being. And, and so I try to study cases where people have difficulties thinking about other minds or we fail to do so. So that experience comes back to me a lot now, even though at the time I didn't think a lot about it. Mainly because at that point in time, I didn't know what psychology was. I thought mm. it was just clinical psychology like most people. And I never even thought about science because I was very much a humanities type person. So. And um, so were you studying in the U.S.? No, were so I, I did my uh, primary and secondary school in Trinidad, where I'm from, and then I went to the U.S. for my undergraduate, Ph.D., and postdoc, as well as my first job. So I confess absolute ignorance about the educational system in Trinidad, but how early did you have to start select, like narrowing right. down what you studied? It's based exactly on the British system. And I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it actually worked well for me because they forced you to narrow down at all levels a little bit, so you had to pick subjects. Yeah. And I avoided science um, because in my mind I thought of myself as not very scientific. I liked math, and I was good at math, but I saw that as something very separate from science. Yeah. Um, and so that's what allowed me to study economics at A-levels, for instance. And so my combination of subjects was very weird, because you didn't get people interested in literature who wanted to do economics, for mm. instance. Um, and psychology is the perfect blend of those things, ironically. So I, I think I've always been a psychologist without realizing it. Yeah. But in that British system, there's no psychology. The closest you get is sociology, and that's terrible. Yeah. Like, it's just it's <laughs> not what we do, so it's really difficult. But I think sense. one of the things I genuinely love about psychology as a science is that it, exactly like you say, it's inherently very interdisciplinary and it really helps to know about economics or know about literature. Whereas I, I went, ended up in psychology from having done, you know, straight down the line, um, chemistry, physics, biology. And I have no regrets about doing that. I'm delighted I did that. I still find that very useful. But it's a science that can... I actually tell people, don't do psychology at A-level. Exactly. Go and do something else, yeah. and then go and do psychology. Yeah, psychology sits in the middle, right? So you look at our bachelor's program, for instance. They're learning everything from genetics to social theory, right? It's the only discipline that covers that breadth, and yeah. which is why it's a good home for me, right? Because yeah. I think very interdisciplinary. My first thought isn't necessarily a scientific one. It's more of a social one or a humanities type of question, because that's who I am. And so mm. I got into psychology actually by accident. So when I went to university, I was a film major. I wanted to make movies and tell stories. Wow. And I did that for a long time. Um, and so one day I was working on a film um, for a director who's now very famous because he directed the Black Panther movies. All right. Yeah. Um, so I was working with him on one of his student films, and it was just the most boring experience. Because in the creative field, you sort of, it's subjective, so the director has to like it. And so you do a take over and over and over again. And that was my breaking point. I thought, there's no way I can suffer through this. 
Um, but at my university, uh, film was in what was an old communications department, and part of that was psychology, because psychology at that university was viewed mainly through speech therapy. Mm. And so it was in the communications area. And so as I was thinking, what else can I do? I don't like film anymore. I sort of stumbled into the psychology office, and the mm. guy there was a developmental psychologist, and he had pictures of himself from infancy through adulthood, and he said, I try to understand how this baby is now this adult, because to me, they're the same person, but to mm. everybody else, they're very different. And I thought, that's interesting. But still, I didn't get into that stuff. I got into the statistics, because that's what I thought was nice. So I ended up doing a lot of psychometrics. So I worked for the educational testing service, for instance, making standardized tests like the SATs and the GREs. And I thought that's what I would do. Mm. Um, and in there, there was a literature on test anxiety. And in that literature was stereotype threat research. And that was a social psychology topic. So when I applied... Could you very briefly sorry, just explain what stereotype sure, threat is? Sure. Stereotype threat is the idea that if there's a particular category you belong to, so a social group, let's say gender, and there are particular stereotypes about gender... Let's say there's a stereotype that women aren't as good as math. If you're reminded about your gender as a woman before a math test, you'll do worse. So you can form the stereotype. So it's in the test anxiety literature because yeah. it's a testing environment. Yeah. But I just couldn't make sense of it. It seemed ridiculous to me. Um, so I decided to do it for my thesis. And based on that, I applied to educational psychology programs to do psychometrics and one social psychology program, which is the one I ended up going to. So I stumbled into that. And then when I got there, my supervisor said, well, we're doing this thing where we're teaching students neuroscience because people are getting into neuroscience. Mm. I had never done science since I was 14. and But she said it's all statistics, which is really what it is, right? Yeah. It's all number crunching. And so I thought, yeah, I can do that. I had no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> so I had to learn magnet physics and yes. neurobiology without any of the requisite background. So that was fun. Um, <laughs> but it was all accidental. So there was yeah. no plan to sort of end up here. Yeah. yeah. I think there is, I think one of the flip sides of academia, not having this very kind of strict kind of career... I'm really sorry about this. Let me it's just okay. see who this is. I'm sorry. Sorry. Hello? Hi, I'm, I'm, I'm just in a meeting at the moment. Would it be possible to call later? Thank you very much. Thank you. I haven't reviewed a grant. <laughs> I've got to the angry phone call stage. Thank you to review a grant. <laughs> I should leave this in. <laughs> so when I was just setting things up, we were talking about how academia doesn't have a a very kind of rigid career pathway, mm. and that can be that can make things hard. It yeah. can make it hard to know what to do next or how to navigate your path. I think one of the things that I do like about academia, though, is this sort of possibility of serendipity, and actually, you would have never set out to be someone who studied the brain, but actually, yeah. you've done brilliantly at it um, because of the sort of just the, the, a decision that you made about doing something to do with social psychology exactly. rather than psychometric tasting. Exactly. And I think that's what makes our science interesting as well, right? Because 
I don't think people set out to have the grand discoveries that they do. Those are usually accidental. Mm. And that's the beauty of it. If you open yourself up and you allow the possibility, then of course it can happen. Mm. And if anything, I think that's what I had. I had a very open mind because I didn't have a pre-existing belief about I'm going to be this kind of person. Yeah. Um, because in sort of my family history, no one did anything like that. So I, yes. there was no pressure to be this kind of person. I could be whatever I wanted to. And so that was liberating, I think. Was there anybody in your family who'd been to, you know, studied at university? No, no, like I was that? the first one at university. And so they had no, still my family doesn't really know what I do. Um, they see videos on YouTube and they get a sense of it. So they think I teach and that's the easiest to tell them but there was no path for me so I there was mm -hmm. no one I looked at and said I'm going to do exactly what this person did I just sort of did what was natural right? what seemed like it made sense yeah. Um, yeah and so maybe there were lots of mistakes in there but who knows right um it still seemed to work out mainly because I kept an open mind about things yeah and I think there's um, somebody I was, else I was talking to, Val Hazan, who we were just talking mm -hmm. about her career, and she's a very different sort of stage in her career. And we were talking about how you would ever do things differently. And she said she'd, she'd wish she'd had more of a plan. But then we weren't quite sure actually if there's ever really a point in academic career where you, you it would mean be meaningful to have one. It's not, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's somehow maybe sometimes it feels like everybody else knows exactly what they're doing, but yeah. actually often I suspect they are you know similarly kind of just making doing the next right thing exactly because it's not up to you so i remember when i was finishing up my postdoc in the u.s the recession hit and there were all of these job ads that had gone out in october but by december the recession had really set in and people were pulling their job ads so if you had a plan in your head i'm going to finish my postdoc and go get a job that wasn't yeah. possible and yeah. so many of my colleagues suddenly was scrambling to find second postdocs or some other type of pathway that would have conflicted with a plan you would have created. Mm. And so you can't really control all of it. Mm. So you, one of the things I remember my supervisors telling me is you can't choose where you live. So their advice was if there's a particular university or place you want to live, keep it in your mind and keep looking and maybe at some point something will open up. Yeah. But it's not like another career where you can decide, oh, I want to go live over there and therefore you go move over there. Because you're recruited to universities for very specific reasons that have nothing to do with your plan necessarily. Yeah. People think you would be a good fit or not a good fit for reasons that you're unaware of. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard to plan, I think. It sometimes feels like uh, a better analogy for, for academic careers. is it's, it's almost like the acting profession where... A lot, a lot really is being the right person for the right job at the right time, exactly. and there being something about you and what you're bringing that they can see working for them that could be hard sometimes even to articulate, but certainly doesn't scale up to being like a, this is how we always appoint at this level because it just yeah it's it I think again it's a strength and it's a sort of terrifying aspect of it is it is very ad hominem or very ad feminem mm -hmm. it's what what you have developed and what you have become as you've moved through will be something that could really help you or really hurt you in the application process. Exactly. And I don't think younger researchers understand that. So I certainly didn't grasp that concept when I was younger. I thought, okay, if I publish in these places, then you're going to get a job at these places because yeah. the best publication, and it's nothing like that. No. It's very political in a lot of ways. So for instance, and I've observed this now as I've been in academia for so long, maybe there's two potential candidates 
and one of them is liked by one person and the other by another, but they may have a history themselves and maybe they have cut a deal in the past where if you mm -hmm. let me get mine this time, you get yours that time. And so it's not about the quality of you as a candidate. I mean, yes, there's a minimum standard everybody has to meet, but everybody meets that standard. Yeah. And so how do you make these decisions about who goes where, who ends up where, who gets the grant, who gets the job? It's fairly random to mm -hmm. think about. And that doesn't make most people comfortable, especially if you're a younger researcher. So I tell my students this and they look at me like, I'm not going into academia. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, well, academia is a microcosm of what's happening everywhere. Maybe it's a little more structured in other industries, but I can't imagine that it would work in a very planned way. Mm. But we're, I think, socialized to have a plan and to know what you're doing next. And that doesn't always work. So you mm. have to be open as well, I think. I think being exactly like you say, it just... I, I found it quite useful in life to take flexible positions on things like, well, if this is, you know, I'd like to do X, Y, Z, but I can't, I've got to X, Y and Z right out the window. Okay, well, what else can we do with X then, yeah. you know? Because otherwise you can just get trapped or feel stuck or like you've run out of choices. You just Let yourself have different choices. Let yourself change your mind. Yeah, because there are many parts to the same place, right? So the way I function now, I think, is... I have an overall goal in mind of where I want to end up mm. eventually and the kind of contributions I want to make, but I have no clue how to do that. Mm. And so I just do every day what I think is best and eventually you end up somewhere close to where you imagined. At least that's how I sort of do it. But where, I'm not going to hold you to this. We're not going to appear with a copy of the podcast in 10 years' <laughs> time saying, well, I'm afraid in 2019 yeah. you need to say, what, right now, what would feel like a direction you would like to move in? So right now I'm a bit conflicted, to be honest, in this middle career stage because there's part of me that wants to continue doing the research, but it's very difficult to do the research in the way I would like to do it without having some fairy god grantor where you have unlimited funds and unlimited resources because there's so many things I'm interested in I feel like I'm being forced to choose all of the time, and mm. that's very disquieting. Um, and I'm also thinking that I'm very interested in, for instance, um, policy-related things, for instance. And so maybe I want to be in a position to influence that more. But at the same time, I'm still interested in the university and the sort of student experience, and I want to get involved mm. in that. So I'm at a point where I can choose to go in different directions. And that's unusual, because I never had such a focused plan. My plan mm. has always been to go do good work, right, whatever that is. And that's broad enough where it can yeah. still fit in other places. But now I'm beginning to have to make choices, and I don't like it. It's not what I've ever <laughs> done before. Because you have to allocate your time somewhere. Yeah, so, for yeah. instance, I do a lot of work in the field, um, organizing conferences and editing journals, because I think it's really important work to do. But is it going to get me where I want to be eventually? Probably not, right? Mm. Because I don't have a vision of myself being a president of a society, and that's my life goal, right? Um, and so it's interesting because even though I try to stay flexible, I feel like the further I go, because of the time constraints, you're being forced to make mm. choices. And that's something I didn't anticipate, to be honest. Have you ever thought about that? The, the BPS does that scheme where psychologists can go and sort of shadow MPs. Yeah, you have to be British, though. To get in. Oh, that. so we're not going to let you near yeah, that parliament. No, no, but I do go to parliament for other things. So okay. I'm part of an advisory committee uh, for the Mental Health Act, for instance. So I oh. still get in the door yeah. through the security with the funny hats. How very generous they are. <laughs> well, what's, what's that been like? 
It's been interesting. So I really enjoy the policy work that I've done here in the UK and in the US because I feel like it actually makes a difference. So mm. I've decided that the best way to make social change happen, for instance, is through policy. It's not going to be in the kindness of individuals because they don't really have the broad view that would enable that to happen. So I've been motivated to communicate with those people more. So I spend a lot of time talking to lawyers and policymakers. And it's interesting because sometimes your stuff ends up in a white paper that goes somewhere. I mean, you don't really know what they do with the white paper, but at least it's gotten the attention of policymakers. So I find that rewarding. And now mm -hmm. I have a doctoral student over in the policy school that I'm co-supervising. And it's really been rewarding to do that kind of work because I can see the practical impact. I remember my supervisor would always say, it's a lot easier to be a medical doctor than to be a scientist, right? Because if you're a medical doctor, you get instant reward every day from helping people because you see the difference you're making. Mm -hmm. But with science, it takes years for it to filter through. But you end up helping a lot more people. Um, so if you're interested in helping people, it's better to be a scientist. Well, I think you have to be a scientist, but you also have to talk to the policy folks because a lot of it just ends up in generic academia. And if you don't attempt to do any communication with your research what do they call it now knowledge exchange if yeah. there's no knowledge exchange what's the point of doing all of the work so yeah. the knowledge exchange piece has been big for me recently i think and i think i'll keep along those lines going forward and does how does uh has ucl been supportive to you in this respect ucl is wonderful i think because at ucl you can do whatever you like and that's the beauty of UCL. So everyone I talk to at UCL loves it for that reason. You have complete freedom. And there are lots of places you go where you don't get that freedom. You don't have the freedom in what you study or how you spend your time. So I remember I wrote an academic book a few years ago. And, and everyone at my university at the time said, don't write the book. Don't write the book. Because <laughs> it's just not what you do yes. as a psychologist. But yes. for me, the book was important because it helped organize my thinking it forced mm -hmm. me to engage with literature i wouldn't have read otherwise and it communicated something to the academic community and so i ignored them and wrote it anyway but you don't have that at ucl you don't have people knocking on your door frowning at you when you've done something they yeah. don't approve of yeah and that's really wonderful i think i think i think it's true it has a genuine commitment to kind of a freedom of academic thought and expression yeah. that is genuinely it, it's outstanding. I think it's one of the reasons it's it, people tend to come here and then never leave. Exactly. <laughs> you just kind of get trapped in the orbit, and that's certainly true of me. But it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a wonderful place. I, I found it a very supportive place to work. Yeah, I agree. I mean, because you couldn't do what you do at many other universities, right? They'd say that's not cognitive neuroscience yes. by their silly narrow definition, right? Yes. So it's really because yes. now in London at UCL, I've worked with actors and politicians and mental health professionals and you mm. so there's so many people I get to interact with and I'm free to do so yeah wonderful can so. I ask how because um, you've moved so you went from Trinidad to the US <coughs> for, your, Correct. for your doctoral school what was your trajectory following that did you stay in the US for your postdoc <coughs> okay so trajectory um yeah so I did my undergraduate in the US at Howard University and then I did my master's and PhD at Princeton and from there I went to NYU for a postdoc for a few years and that was a really good experience because I finally got into a neuroscience lab because before that I'd never done neuroscience really even though I was doing brain imaging I didn't have a lab as such 
And then from there, I took a job at Duke University for about three years. And then I moved to the Netherlands for two years, um, mainly because I had a bunch of collaborators there who wanted me to come work with them. And I thought, that's wonderful. And at the time, I really wanted to leave the U.S. as well. Um, and so we came to the Netherlands. And then after I'd been there about a year, I got an offer to come to UCL. And my chair told me, please go. Because in the Netherlands, uh, you have permanent contracts and temporary contracts that are government regulated. So you can only have a certain ratio. Yeah. So you literally have to wait for someone to die or retire before you can get someone a permanent contract. Yes. And the law also says you can renew your temporary contract once. So what lots of Dutch researchers do is they move from university to university until they get a permanent contract. But I wasn't Dutch and I didn't want to go through that. And yeah. so you had a permanent offer here and UCL was a place I'd always wanted to come. So it just ended up working out quite well. So. In my mind, UCL was that university I had written down for my supervisor's advice. And eventually I ended up there, so mm. it worked somehow. Um, yeah. And that's wonderful. No, that's brilliant. Yeah. Was there anybody at UCL you were already working with? <coughs> no. No. So you, and how yeah. did you find that? It kind of, did you kind of you built up a, your research environment in a new place? How, how do you find it? That's the worst part of it, to be honest, because every time you move, you start from scratch. And mm -hmm. so I think it takes about two or three years to just figure out how to do things where you are. Um, and so I blew up my lab when I left Duke, and that was really sad because I had a wonderful group of people there. In LIDA, the setup was very different, so you weren't allowed to have PhD students as an assistant professor. Um, <clears throat> so I ended up just working with my collaborators a lot. And then coming here, I got to build my lab again. Um, so now I think I have a wonderful lab. I have four or five PhD students who are actually finally getting papers submitted. Mm -hmm. So, But it took three or four years to get here. So every mm -hmm. time you move, there's a huge cost to it as an academic in our discipline. Yeah. Um, so I ended up, I'm still publishing papers from Duke because you drag the data around with yeah. you and you've lost the students, so you have to find new ones and... So it slowed things down a lot, I think, but I think it's also been a nice trajectory for me because I've had lots of interesting experiences, so I know what it's like to work in different countries, and mm. everywhere academia is very different, and then every department is very different within each country, and so... But UCL is where I think I've always wanted to be, um, partly because of London and partly because of the social cognition tradition here from people like Chris Frith and Uther Frith. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> just seemed like a fun place to do that kind of work. And being in a big city helps because you can work with lots of interesting people otherwise. Mm. And, and I've lived in tiny cities and small towns and it's not as much fun. Yeah. Um, so. I'm the same. <laughs> how, how has your science sort of evolved along this trajectory? Very interestingly. Um, so when I first started doing social neuroscience as a doctoral student, I didn't really have an idea about what I wanted to study. And then I took a course on social cognition and I found it fascinating. And my supervisor was a social cognition researcher, but she really focused on stereotypes and prejudice. And that stuff wasn't that interesting to me. But the other, the rest of it was. And so I always in my mind thought, that's the kind of work I think I want to do. But something really interesting happened in my doctoral training. The last year of my uh, PhD, my funding came from the Philosophy Institute. So we had a philosophy 
institute there, which was a collection of philosophers in every discipline. So it wasn't just straight philosophers. You had them from English and economics, and I didn't realize philosophers lived everywhere. And so I joined that group for a year, and they really broadened my thinking. So I blame them for being this interdisciplinary, because they started asking all of these questions, developmental questions and evolutionary questions, and they were all very interesting. And I thought, I have to study this stuff. So once I got into my first academic position, I just went and found collaborators. So I looked around in the different departments for people who could help me with the economics and help me with the legal and help me with the developmental. And that's still how I work. So I collaborate quite heavily because there's no way I can be an expert in everything. And I really like that a lot because every day is different. So today, for instance, I was working on a, a law paper um, and I know next on my list I have a, a medical paper to work on, and they're all mm. the same but very different in many ways, and, and that keeps it very interesting for me. So that didn't that wasn't my plan going in, but it ended up being what I found most yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. And is there anywhere anywhere else you'd like to take this? So you've talked very kind of... Uh, you know, clearly about the importance of having for you like this kind of knowledge transfer and this involvement mm-hmm. in policy and sort of seeing the impact that way. Is there, have you ever had any interest in kind of looking along any of the other kind of axes people go down, like kind of um, you know collaborations with industry or kind of public engagement work? <coughs> yeah, so we've done a little bit of industry stuff as well. Um, actually, a lot of it the last year. Um, that's something UCL has really been pushing in PALS and. Again, it's like the policy stuff. You see a real-world impact. So we did a, a big project with a company this year, and we just found out a couple of weeks ago the company had some measured changes, presumably based on what we did. I mean, you can never make a causal argument, but they thought we were causal, yeah. which is great because they'll come back. Yeah. Um, but it's again, it's rewarding to see that. Um, public engagement has been something I've thought about, but I'm unsure how to do, to be quite honest, because think it's one of those things you have to stumble into so I do a fair amount of media um the BBC has my cell phone and they keep ringing it and I've stopped answering because they're ridiculous um (laughs) but I'm thinking of more ways of doing the public engagement but any type of knowledge transfer works well for me because part of what I always think about is I knew none of this stuff before I got into the field. And I feel like it's important and relevant for lots of people. Yeah. And so they should know about it. Yeah. Um, and so I really am invested, I think, in getting the knowledge out there. Um, so that's the main thing I think I want to focus on. So the industry stuff, definitely. Public engagement, I'll keep doing an occasional media yeah. interview. Maybe I'll write a book. I have a, uh, I got approached by a book agent recently about writing a popular book. We'll see. Because, again, I don't know. I haven't written like that in... 20 years. <laughs> Maya, I have to tell you, um, I run a course for the Masters in uh, Cognitive Neuroscience mm-hmm. here at the ICN, and my course is a communication skills course, so we, we have lectures on like, stand-up comedy and podcasting mm-hmm. or whatever, um, and they have to do two pieces of coursework, one is on, they have to make a film, and the other is they have to write a popular science article, and every year, they can choose whatever paper they want to for the mm-hmm. article and for the film. And every year, I, I'd say something between 5 and 10% of people choose one of your papers. Really? Yeah. Oh, um, interesting. It's very, you know, I've, I've given out the entire world of things they could be studying. Yeah. It's very rare for there to be, you know, people, people tend to jump at the opportunity to do something 
that interests them. Mm -hmm. So it, there tends to be a very, very wide range of things people choose. And the only thing, there's always something on synesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> always a handful of papers on your paper. Really? Research, which is definitely, I take that as a compliment because they could choose I anything. I too, yeah. I didn't know that. Thank you. That's wonderful. I'd like to think it's interesting. Though. Yeah, well they, well, they have to choose something they can make interesting. And, make, and the yeah. point is it has, they have to show, you know, kind of write it in a way that make it accessible to people and to show why this work would matter. Yeah. Why is this important? Yeah. So I think it is really fabulous that people, you know, oh, people are wonderful. regularly tricking your stuff. It shows they really can see a, yeah. a way that they could explain it that way. And I'm one of the people that believes all science has to be like that, right? I mean, yes, I appreciate you can study something just for the intellectual question. Yes, fine. But scientists are so well trained. There's so much resources invested in us that we should be using all of that for something that actually makes a contribution, which is why I'm happy to see knowledge exchange be emphasized, mm. for instance. And the other thing is, because I'm so interdisciplinary, I'm used to talking to people who have no idea what I'm talking about. So I have to find ways of talking about it that are general. Yeah. Um, and I think we all should do that as scientists. So I'm happy to hear you're doing that. We should introduce it over at PALS and EP as well, because... That's a really important skill, and they don't teach us that. They don't teach us a lot of stuff that we need yeah. to do, right? They never teach us how to write. We never think never of ourselves as professional that. writers, nope. and we absolutely are. Yeah, yeah. If you can't write, it doesn't matter how good your science is. Exactly. We, we have to write. We have to supervise and manage. You never get taught how to do that. You never get taught how to teach, really. Most people just take a course or a mm. training session, but you don't really get real investment in how to teach. So a lot of it means you figure it out on your own, which is why there's so many terrible academics, right? Because they just they are good at one thing and they don't yeah. do any of the other stuff. And again, I feel like that's letting ourselves down and the science down because that's who we are as scientists, mm. right? We're the ones who are generating knowledge, so you have to then communicate that knowledge. Yeah, and then this every year. Um, I try and explain to the students why we have this course. Every year there's people going, why is this happening? This is a nightmare. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I say is that if you don't, you know, if you, you can do the best study in the world, but if you give a boring talk on it, there's a very high chance no one will listen to exactly. what you're saying. If you make your talk interesting, you publish the paper, you make the paper well written, there is at least a chance that people might engage with what you've done. And then... That's the only way you have any hope of being able to really contribute to the wider world of things that then happen to the science after you've put it out there. Because exactly. No one, no one listens to your talk, no one reads your papers, no one picks up on your ideas. It's that, that's all we can ever hope yeah. for, really, for influence. Because you should control the message about your work. So I remember um, in graduate school there was a postdoc there in a, a cellular neuroscience lab, and she worked in neurogenesis. So she did studies with rats and... She had this one paper that came out about a uh, parent thing. So when male rats became parents, suddenly there was increased neurogenesis in their brain. While it was a science paper, so the popular media picked it up, and then Vogue called her, and then, no, Cosmo called her and did an interview. And when the interview came out, the headline was, Sex Grows Your Brain. And so her grandmother called her up, like, what are you doing at university? And it was because she didn't communicate well, right? And yeah. so the study had nothing to do with sex. It was about becoming a parent. Yeah. But for them, for Cosmo, the sex part that leads to parenting was the interesting yes. bit. And so sex grows your brain, right? And she was very distraught about that. But that was a good early lesson for me, that you have to control the message about yeah. your research, or else it gets taken up. Because newspapers... 
and media have very different goals than you do. Science is nuanced and complex, and they want headlines and mm. sensation and clickbait, right? And you yeah. have to understand that and be able to manage that translation, or else you end up being attributed all types of crazy things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that to me is terrible. Like I would never want anyone to misinterpret what I've done. And I don't think there's. I mean, I think these the. There are so many reasons to pay attention to how you write and how you communicate ideas and how, and exactly like you say, have a bit of an idea in advance of what you want people to take away exactly. from things before you write the paper, before you do the press release, before you give the talk. Um, something I, I've not been very consistent on this, but when I remember to, or when I have a paper that I think would be interesting for this, I do like a very short video abstract where I just yeah. deliberately make it like I, in 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 a way that could be not in no way aimed only at scientists they just talk about what why it matters what we did what we did and what it might mean just exactly. quickly and then you put it out there and that's much to me i'd rather do that nowadays than do a press release and all that kind of like because they always want to have this yeah. what further implications might yeah. they you know just have it in your words out there yeah and then you as you say you own it yeah and scientists have gotten better at that so there are lots of them who run their own podcasts and blogs mm -hmm. and I think that's really been a wonderful change because you can communicate directly to the public now in ways you couldn't before. Yeah. Um, and so it makes sense that you're trained to do that because yeah. I think that's essential. Because there's so much crap out there, like you have to be able to interpret your work properly. Yeah. But you also have to think about the implications when you do the work. And I don't know how many of us do that, right? A lot of people are caught in an intellectual bubble, again, which is fine, but we live in the real world too. and. Your yeah. work is going to get out there and it's going to have impact and implications. So you yeah. should control that. Think what that is. Yeah. 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 Can I ask you a non-science question? Sure. So you've been a phenomenally successful scientist and you've got a really, you know, really interesting profile within UCL. But it can't be everything that you do. What else do you do with your time? When you, do, <laughs> you, you kind of you do something that you enjoy doing that kind of gives you a life away from science. Uh, at the moment, my life away from UCL is with my two kids. So they're six and two, which means I'm heavily invested. Um, and my wife and I share our responsibilities. So we don't put our kids in daycare or anything. So we literally spend half the week each taking care of them because our belief is they're only going to be tiny for this long. And then that part of their life is gone and you never get it back unless you have another kid and we're not doing that. And so we're really spending that time now before it slips away. And it's already sort of slipping away. Like this six-year-old is now very independent and it's a little crushing because you no longer feel as useful. Um, so that's really preoccupying my time. When I'm not doing that, um, in my life before, I was into sports a lot. So I, I love every type of sport. It really doesn't matter. Um, so I did a lot of sport watching, not playing. I was, I'm not super athletic. Um, and I also am very into music. And so I actually used to DJ in high school. And yeah. I still do for myself and my kids. Like I won't go to a bar and do it. But it's so much easier to do it now. Music is so much more accessible. It's really mm -hmm. a lot of fun for me to do that. Um, so those are my hobbies, if you will, outside of academia. But I don't have a lot of time for anything besides the kids and yeah. this these days which is a little sad but it's temporary exactly my so. mother once said that that children are babies and small they're small for such a short, short part of time. your life yeah. as well like most of your life is not going to have that baby exactly in it. so be i i'll be there be there yeah. in that moment yeah because soon they'll be gone and then you get a phone call maybe right every so often yes. 
and so it's it's a wonderful experience to have i yeah. think to be a parent and it's been interesting because you've i've gotten a lot of backlash from doing it as a man so people expect my wife to do it but when i tell people no i can't i have to go home for the kids i still get people who react negatively to that yeah. which is interesting um so it's made me experience gender discrimination in a very strange way yeah. because again it's a violation of what you expect men to do um and the university system is somewhat supportive of that in the sense we have the daycares if you need it you get the parental leave but mainly it's been our administration at the university who've been really supportive so they've said mm. yes go take whatever you need yeah um because they get it and that's really been grateful because not every university does that especially if you're the father right yes. they think well the wife is doing everything what you need exactly yeah. um so it's nice to see that type of support and that's something I've heard echoed around UCL as well i think it is uh, something that is genuinely worth celebrating the flexibility that UCL yeah. does permit you because pretty much if, as long as things get done yeah, you know they. they are happy. It's, yeah, yeah, and they, yeah. it's a it's a it's a very good thing to know people can be supported in that, and also people who, I mean, I know people at UCL, women at UCL who have had a part time job since their children were born because that's what they wanted. Yeah, and UCL and heads of departments have been really supportive of that, which is great. It's wonderful. So I just got a, a, a re- automatic response from the physicist I'm setting up an fMRI study. And he's recently had a baby, and his automatic response says, "I'm sorry, I'm unavailable. I'm taking care of the kids until next week." Yeah. Like you would never see that before at yeah. many other places, right? So yeah. when you get it, and it comes from a female person, it's expected. But the fact that men here are comfortable enough to say that and do that is really remarkable because yeah. it's very rare, I think, in academia still. It's it's um, it's got to be the way forward. It's so positive. yeah. That's yeah. what the whole feminist movement is about, in my opinion. Both genders should be allowed to do all of these things, right? It shouldn't be. Because it's so lovely. The, it it's is. So nice. It's so rewarding. It's, it's yes. a lot of fun. It's very annoying at times because we're kids. But it's so engaging and entertaining. And then as a psychologist, I can't help myself. I'm yeah. running all of these little experiments and them and getting yelled at by my wife. Um, <laughs> but I just can't help it. If you're interested in people and human behavior, two little humans in front of you, that's... And you get to shape them. That's remarkable to me. So no, I wouldn't want to miss that. Mm. I think that's perhaps the most special thing I do these days is spend time with them. Yeah. yeah. It, it, well, you used the phrase earlier. It's but it genuinely is an honour. It is. It really it's is. Very special. Yeah. Is there anything that you would add? Is there, would there be any advice that you would give somebody who was saying, "Well, you know, I'm doing my PhD, but I'm, I'm I feel like I want to go to a different country for my, yeah. you know, my postdoc or." Um, I think moving countries in academia perhaps is the easiest industry in which you can move because I think you don't have to be recertified, for instance. So if you were in law, you'd have to take a new exam or something like that. Um, So moving different countries really should be a decision about where you want to live. And so for my wife and I, we weren't American. I had lived there a while, but when we got married, she hadn't. And she had family here and she wanted to live here, so we moved here. And you really get that freedom in academia. So last year at the big social psych conference, I was on a panel on this topic, like, I want to move abroad. What do I do? How do I think about it? And the advice really is to just go visit the university, visit Mm -hmm. the department, talk to the people there, see what their lives are like. Because academic life is very different in different places. So I remember in the U.S., for instance, everybody worked from 9 to 5 every day. They were always in their offices, which was just part of that American culture. 
But that's not the case in other places like the Netherlands where people were really in the office four days a week because on the fifth day, everybody spent it at home with their kids mm. because the chair of the department, that's what she did. So she set that norm. And so you have to understand the local norms and figure out, will they work for you? Mm. And then you can make a decision because lots of people just think about the city or the country, not about what your life will be like. Mm. And it's important to pay attention to that part because you don't think about that. Um, so think about what your life would be like, whether it fits you and the way you like to work, and then you can make a decision. And I, would there be anything that you, if you were doing everything all over again, would there be anything that you would do differently? Um, I think I might spend longer in my postdoc. So I spent three years and that wasn't enough because postdocs are great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true. It's was, like yeah. you have no responsibilities, you just get to focus on research. And I think I was too excited to become a professor. Yeah. So three years was nice, but I would have made it five or six, like just staying in that moment where all you can do is think about your research. Because all the studies I ran as a professor were studies I designed in my postdoc. I just was sort of waiting to go. Yeah. I was a bit too anxious, but that's a problem I have my entire life. So I would really would have liked to have spent more time there. The other thing I would have liked to have done is take a break. So I never took time off between uh, secondary school to now. I've always been in school, I tell people. Mm. Every September, I'm going to the new school year. <laughs> um, so I think I would have liked a year or two being a research assistant or working in a job, just seeing what that is like, um, having that experience. But I don't miss it. I have friends in the real world, and mm. I listen to them and their suffering. I don't think I missed out on anything, it's, but it would have been nice to sort of know what it was like myself. I spent a year selling kilts just around the corner on Southampton Road really? before I went to Polytechnic, and uh, I have, I, I it was, it, I had a very, it was a fantastic year. I learned all the tartans. <laughs> I learned so much swearing in, in, in Italian because I worked with a very angry Italian woman, mm. and um, and I got like completely immersed in the world of London soul music I never had mm. been before. It was it was the best job ever. So yeah. yes, no, there's I probably. All other things being equal, I probably wouldn't have ended up in the situation where that's what I had to do. <laughs> it was a fantastic job. Yeah. I can't thank you enough. Thanks it's for been having me. Absolutely brilliant having you come by and talk to us. And it's just a, a, a fascinating story. I feel like it's still like 100 questions. Maybe maybe we can get you back. <laughs> and I can start asking more about your science sure. next time. But thank you ever so much, Susanna. Thank Thanks you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been What Works. My name is Sophie Scott.